0: From VOA, Press Conference USA, here is your host, Carol Castiel. Welcome to Press Conference USA on the Voice of America. I'm Carol Castiel. Our guest on this edition of the program is a woman who works at the nexus of technology and good governance. Beth Simone Novek served in the White House as the first U.S. Deputy Chief Technology Officer and Director of the White House Open Government Initiative, under former President Barack Obama. Currently, she is a professor at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts, and directs the Burns Center for Social Change and its partner program, the Governance Lab. She is also the author of the new book, Solving Public Problems, a Practical Guide to Fix Our Government and Change Our World. From the coronavirus pandemic to systemic racism, climate change, mass shootings, and economic inequality— there is no shortage of crises facing the United States and countries around the world. Unfortunately, these challenges, which require effective and efficient governance, converge at a time when faith in our public institutions is at an all-time low. In her new book, Solving Public Problems, a Practical Guide to Fix Our Government and Change Our World, Beth Simone Novak shows how both citizens and governments can leverage digital technology data and the collective wisdom of communities to design and deliver solutions to contemporary problems. We will talk with Ms. Novick about her firsthand experiences regarding innovative and data-driven techniques that enhance government's effectiveness. Concurrent with her teaching and work at the Governance Lab, Beth Simone Novick is also the state of New Jersey's first Chief Innovation Officer and Chair of the state's Future of Work Task Force. She also served on the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on Technology and Ethics. Beth Novick served on German Chancellor Angela Merkel's Digital Council in 2018 and was appointed Senior Advisor for Open Government by former UK Prime Minister David Cameron. Beth Simone Novak joins us via Microsoft Teams to discuss her new book, Solving Public Problems, A Practical Guide to Fix Our Government and Change Our World. Beth Simonovic, welcome to the program.
1: Carol, thank you for having me. Delighted to be here.
0: Congratulations on your book, The Culmination of Your Life's Work Thus Far on the Nexus Between Technology and Government. Beth, from your time in the Obama administration as Deputy Chief Technology Officer and then to your work advising governments around the world, what have you learned about solving public problems within government?
1: Well, the first thing I think we can all acknowledge, as you pointed out, is that we have plenty of them to solve. We are all wrestling with acute challenges right now, whether it's the current effects of COVID or the economic impacts of COVID, like rampant unemployment, whether it's migration challenges, or whether it's chronic problems like climate change, economic inequality, racial inequities. We have plenty of public problems. And what makes them distinctly public rather than private problems, is that there's a lot of disagreement about what those challenges are, what the causes of those problems are, how we should solve them, and disagreement, frankly, about whether to solve them at all and with what priority. You know, a colleague of mine likens this to the challenge of getting from place A to B, let's say Boston to LA in the 19th century versus the 20th century, right? In the 21st century that we're in, we flip on our Google Maps, but in the 19th century to try to get to a place unknown without a map, that's really what it's like to try to tackle a public problem. So we have plenty of challenges, but I think we have a lot of willing people up to the task. And in my time working in government, and also advising governments, what I've seen is there are a tremendous number of well-intentioned people who really, truly want to serve and improve people's lives, and increasingly who are able to leverage new technologies, whether it's big data, machine learning, and artificial intelligence technologies, whether it's technologies for collaboration and collective intelligence, in other words, things for bringing us into conversation with one another. We have fabulous new tools at our disposal, and the combination of the two are really helping us to come up with better solutions faster than ever before to these very, very vexing problems.
0: Since you referenced the COVID-19 pandemic, what do you think the pandemic reveals about what it takes to solve problems? Has the enormous challenge allowed some governments to truly step up to the plate and perhaps been the downfall of others?
1: Yeah, so I think when a lot of us think, especially about government, right, it's not always a positive association. There is, and depending on the country you're in, probably not only low rates of trust in government with some exceptions, but declining rates of trust over a long generation. And that's only been exacerbated by COVID. I mean, if you look at failures like what's been talked about in the news a great deal, the 37 billion pounds the UK government spent on its test and tracing program with arguably little to show for it. We've had challenges in the United States, for example, with our mask policy, where there's been a lot of confusion about public health directives and 60% of the public have deemed our public federal health agencies that uh, their communication strategy at least to be inconsistent and a failure the who has set out what seemed to be a relatively modest goal of trying to vaccinate 10% of the world's population that goal seems frankly almost insurmountable at this point so on the one hand we see have seen lots of failures during covid But I think it's really easy to essentially make fun of public sector shortcomings and to complain about failures in the public sector because we've seen equally numerous and effective successes. So whether it's countries like New Zealand or Vietnam who immediately shut down their borders and who immediately created, you know, task forces and response strategies, what we've seen is lots of examples all over the world of new ways of working during COVID that are really different than the way people have done things before. So let me give a couple of examples here. So instead of working behind closed doors, we had a lot of governments really working behind closed doors and doing things in a sort of slow and lumbering way, the way we think of bureaucracy bureaucracies working. We had a lot of governments really do things incredibly rapidly. So in Israel, for example, which has become known for its successful vaccine policy, they immediately stood up a program almost overnight to notify the public about leftover doses of vaccine so that nothing would go to waste and they could get more shots in arms. In the United States, our Department of Veterans Affairs, we had to hire and bring in more than 55,000 new employees, a lot of nurses, public health workers, into the Veterans Administration and Veterans Hospitals. We had to reduce the average time to hire in government from 90 down to 10 days. I know I complained about Britain's test and trace program, but Britain also at the same time stood up seven new hospitals. Now, thankfully, it didn't need all that excess capacity at that point, but it was able to be really agile and turn on a dime. So at the very least, you know, what we've seen is lots of examples of a much greater use of agility and the ability to act quickly in the face of a crisis. Let me give one more set of examples, because I think there's a whole bunch of skills that we've really seen exercised during COVID that really kind of give us a playbook for how we can do things differently. There was a lot greater use of data. I mean, I think all of us as individuals kind of got used to every day checking the COVID rates, checking the spread, becoming used to these press conferences where leaders would get up in front of a television camera and show us graphs of the spread of the virus. And so that greater reliance on data has really propelled us, accelerated the push towards more evidence-based policymaking. So Kerala India, for example, turned around and created a symptom tracker to get People to report their symptoms as a way both of giving people better public health information, but also providing real-time sources of data. In my own work in the state of New Jersey in the USA, where I work with the governor and lead the innovation office there, we copied what they did in India and we stood up our own symptom tracker that gave us real-time data from hundreds of thousands of people. And what I think we also did in addition to acting quickly and in addition to using more data is we've really just seen more openness and collaboration in terms of borrowing good ideas of what has worked elsewhere in the world. So, you know, we turned to Africa to look at the experience of what happened in Liberia under Ebola and learned about contact tracing, which was a very successful experiment in Africa and borrowed in the places it was done well, traded on that experience to, I think, do things more effectively. Frankly, learning that it can be done without a lot of high-tech tools to really maintain an effective contact tracing program. You know, it's being able to turn to other places, whether it's other governments, whether it's civil society, or whether it's individuals, there are lots of great examples that we learned during COVID. And frankly, there's been a lot of this innovation happening all along. COVID has just really helped to shine a light on it.
0: Absolutely. Well, those are some terrific examples that you provided, particularly regarding Liberia. And I think you've mentioned Ebola. And of course, we can learn a lot from the developing world. But let me turn now to the domestic scene. Some analysts are saying that the Biden-Harris administration seems to be ushering in a new era of big government. Now, we saw recently that a $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill cleared the Senate, and there's a possibility of a much larger $3.5 trillion human infrastructure bill that may only survive with Democratic support, and even that is questionable. But nonetheless, and of course, then Republicans are derisively saying that the Biden and Harris administration is bringing in so-called socialist policies. Of course, this is an exaggeration, but this is the kind of language they use to criticize. Nonetheless, again, this idea of a bigger government, more government intervention. And I say that with respect to Republicans, because if you recall, under the Trump administration, these same Republicans didn't have a problem passing a tax cut that benefited mostly wealthy people and added significantly to the deficit. But how would you characterize the Biden-Harris strategy and its objectives?
1: So I think these issues about effective government are really shouldn't be political issues, with the exception of a swath of people on the right who believe that we should get rid of government altogether. We might call them on the right and on the left. At both extremes, you have plenty of people that really don't want to see effective functioning government at all. So that's a very, very small minority. And whether it's in the U.S. or any other country, most of us, and all the survey data shows that regardless of political affiliation, people want schools that teach their children effectively. They want healthcare that works. They want the trash taken out. They want government to do the basic services of government. There's, you know, disagreement about particular issues like foreign policy tends to be areas of disagreement, you know, migration and immigration. So there are certain areas that do kind of divide people. But on the whole, when we talk about basic services and in particular, Americans and everywhere in the world, people just want a government that works. There isn't a left or a right way of taking out the trash, a Democrat or Republican way of getting health care. There's just good health care and good schools and solutions to our problems, whether it's climate change or racial inequality or, or economic inequality. So I think the sort of debate that we've had over a last generation, not just in the U.S., but elsewhere, about bigger versus smaller government, a debate. That was ushered in by Reagan and Thatcher, designed to again paint government as the problem rather than as the solution. I don't think these debates serve us very well. Yes, these are very, very big spending bills, and we're talking about spending more money than we have since World War II. This is the biggest infrastructure package we've seen in a generation. So these are hugely important kind of investments. But regardless of whether you're a big or a small government person, regardless of whether you're left or right, arguably all. All of us should want government that works. We don't want bigger or smaller. We want better government. We want, if we're going to be spending money on building bridges, to know that we're able to build those bridges, to build those roads, to deliver on better trains and better airports and the things that these investments are supposed to pay for. So how does this relate to the skills discussion we were just having about mindsets and skill sets during COVID? I would argue that it's extraordinarily important for us, if we're going to spend all this money, to make sure that we're training the people who are going to spend it in the skills that they need to be able to be effective problem solvers and decision makers. In a 21st century where we have access to new tools Every public servant in particular really needs to know how do you use data to understand a problem? But how do I also reach out to and engage with citizens to use what we might call human-centered design to actually talk to and engage with citizens about how they understand the problem in order that we are actually designing solutions that respond to a problem? How do I actually turn to the world's best and brightest using open innovation, the skill some people might call it crowdsourcing, open innovation, or engagement? How do we turn to the world's best and brightest to be able to come up with the best solutions so if we want to build those roads we want to build those bridges how do we know we're using the best science the best materials that we could possibly use these are skills to know how to solve a problem whether it's defining the problem or developing the solution or implementing a solution or then evaluating whether that solution has worked There are skills to be able to do that skills that are improved with new technologies And those skills are not something we're born with. They're something that we have to learn how to do. And so the argument that I make in the book is that it's a real mistake that we're making if we don't invest in skills training. The government in the United States, like in many countries, is the largest employer in our country. And yet, unbelievably, we don't have a training strategy. You know, at IBM, they mandate that every employee needs to know human-centered design. At AT AT&T, they spend $250 million every year on employee training. It's not that we don't have training. We just don't have a training strategy. We don't have a mandate or a mission which says these are the skills that we think every public servant in the 21st century needs to know to be able to deliver more effective solutions to problems. So if we're going to have bigger government, I would say it has to be accompanied by better government, and that demands training people in new ways of working.
0: You're listening to Press Conference USA on the Voice of America. My guest is Beth Simon professor at Northeastern University and author of the new book, Solving Public Problems, a practical guide to fix our government and change our world. I'm Carol Castiel. This is a reminder that our Press Conference USA podcast is available for free download on our website at voanews.com slash PC USA. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Well, here's a shout out to a loyal listener and Facebook fan, David Masaba from Uganda. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to PCUSA at VOANews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. So back to our special guest, Beth Novak, talking about her new book, Beth. Following up on your answer to our question about whether we're ushering in an era of big government or not here in the United States. So with respect to the need for investing in skills training, having a strategy for that, are you confident that the infrastructure package that is likely to pass will be properly implemented, you know, fixing all the bridges and roads and broadband? Do we have a plan? Is that going to be included in the framework? in order for the money to be spent properly and well accounted for and have the tangible effects that we're looking for.
1: Well, I think that's really the question Carol. You know, I'm a huge fan of and supporter of this legislation. I think these investments are long overdue, but I do worry that we need to have the capacity to be able to spend this money well. And there are of course a lot of questions that stand in the way between idea and implementation that's sometimes called the innovators chasm that we need to cross is the will that we have to be able to upgrade our infrastructure and the actual implementation can be a very, very large distance and getting things done and getting things done quickly requires the ability to learn how do I do things in an agile way? How do I avoid failures like that $37 billion spent in the UK if they had done things in a way that was more collaborative, more open, adopting many of these new ways of working? Someone along the way would have said, it does not cost 37 billion pounds to create an app. So you can have a lot of money As we will, we hope, for infrastructure, but as we saw a lot of money being spent during COVID and thereafter, what we want to do is that we're spending that money successfully and wisely. And I think that means, in addition to being sure that we create the conditions for innovation, that we're not overburdening people with rules that make it hard for them to operate, I think the first place and the simplest thing we can do is to really require people to do some training that will ensure that they understand, how do I use data? How do I consult with citizens? to make sure I understand the problem as they experience it. How do I do what I would call fast field scanning, what some people call evidence synthesis? In other words, how do I look for what else has been tried elsewhere? One of the things, especially in government, but also outside of it, if we're a social innovator who wants to make change happen, we wanna be looking for things that have worked elsewhere. We wanna look for the pilots, the experiments, the projects, the apps, the programs that have worked in another place that we can borrow. So I gave you that example before of Kerala India that had a symptom tracker. And then we in New Jersey borrowed their experience. And then we turned around and created our own program based on the wisdom from them of what worked and also what didn't work. And similarly, so we want to be sure that every time that we are launching a new initiative, every minister should be saying, hey, I want to be sure that there is a memo appended to what you're pitching me. That shows me that you have looked already for what else is out there, that you have looked at the evidence of both success and failure, that you have done your due diligence so that we are using the latest in science and technology, that we're using the best data available, that you've actually talked to citizens, and that you have looked at what other jurisdictions have done to actually get things done.
0: Let me now turn to other matters, whether it's climate change or racial justice More people than ever, particularly young people in the wake of Black Lives Matter and the fight for racial justice or Fridays for Future and the fight against climate change, want to create change and address society's biggest challenges. This also applies to our listeners around the world in their countries. And of course, you've met many of these people throughout your work. What do you think are the obstacles standing in the way of progress or real change for these people?
1: Well, I think you're absolutely right that we've seen more engagement, you know, in this generation. I think there is so much of the desire to engage in social change. You know, survey data shows that 65 percent of millennials, at least in the United States, want to at least work in a place where they're going to make a difference in the world. We've seen higher voter turnout rates in recent elections, at least in the United States, than we have in recent years. We've seen examples all over the world of the Greta Thunbergs of the world, the Malalas of the world, who really have been a sort of lodestar for other young people to want to man the barricades and make a difference and be involved in social change. I think the big challenge, though, is for young people, as much as for social innovators, as much as for public sector innovators, is that we are not teaching the skills that people need to know how to go from demanding change to actually making change. So, in the last generation, we've seen a lot of investment in teaching business entrepreneurship at universities all over the world. So, those programs are proliferating in terms of teaching people to start a business and what that means. How do I make a business plan? How do I get financing? all the things that you need to know in order to start a business. But if we really believe that there's a set of skills that you need to develop in order to solve a problem, whether it's problem definition, data analytical thinking, human-centered design, Open innovation or the use of collective intelligence, the rapid evidence review we talked about, or being able to partner with people in other sectors, those skills, and I outlined seven of them in my book, are things that we need to learn how to do. Again, they're not innate, but we're not teaching them. We do teach design increasingly in many universities and colleges. But again, how do I get that idea implemented in the real world is something that we don't frequently teach to young people. That piece, which is, again, crossing the chasm from idea to implementation, is something I think we need to teach more of. And moreover, it shouldn't be limited to universities. There is nothing that requires an advanced degree when it comes to making change happen in your own communities. And we've seen plenty of examples of social innovators who have turned around and created, you know, game-changing innovation whether it's you know an air purifying device or a water cleaning device whether it's you know an innovation in process not involving tech like the mkss group in rajasthan india who in order to promote transparency has gone around from village to village reading the budget to people in the town square no tech no apps just storytelling around the budget in order to get people to spot bridges built to nowhere You know, maybe it's the hacker in Brooklyn who's working with the designers in Helsinki to build a new climate change program called Climate Watch for the city of Helsinki, where they are getting citizens to hold government officials accountable for meeting their climate change goals. So countless great examples, very similar project created by Prince Amin in Ghana Also around, again, getting citizens to hold government accountable. Lots of these great examples doesn't require a college degree. Surely doesn't require a PhD, but we need to provide more access to skills training in how to solve public problems to people all around the world.
0: That's an excellent observation. Now, in the private sector, there's a conversation about the role of business in society and corporate social responsibility. How do you think the private sector can play a role in addressing our biggest problems such as climate change and racial equity?
1: So it's exactly that. It's first of all, having the desire to do well by doing good and to be engaged in mission driven work. I think many companies, in order to retain their best employees, are turning to mission-driven work, whether with government or with universities or with civil society, they do very much want to make a difference because it's what their employees want to do. So you have an organization, a sort of initiative called Civic Bridge in San Francisco. That's a collaboration between the city of San Francisco and the surrounding tech companies in Silicon Valley, where they have an organized process for helping tech company employees to volunteer to get involved in a public project. So whether it's helping the city on fighting homelessness or fixing the food stamps, the food assistance website, they're creating manageable ways for people to volunteer their time and to get involved. So I think a lot of this lesson about public problem solving skills applies just as much to people in the private sector who want to get involved in making a difference. It means starting by understanding how do I define a problem that matters? How do I use data to be able to understand that problem? How do I talk to citizens about the problem as they're experiencing it? If we want corporate employees to be involved in this work, we have to impart them the skills. But then there are also a few other things that companies can do here. One is we talk a lot about data analytical ways of solving problems and, you know, defining problems with data. Much of that data is held by the private sector, not by the public sector. So if you are a company that's collecting data about Shopping habits of citizens or, you know, tracking the content that young people are looking at online, or maybe you have a health app, whatever you're doing, you might be collecting data in the course of doing your business or provisioning your service where that data could be reused for purposes of public good. And we're seeing lots of examples of companies wanting to get involved in what are sometimes called data collaboratives. Partnerships where they're sharing the data that they use for business purposes to use also for solving public problems.
0: Indeed. Many times the private sector is at the forefront of important change, and the government sometimes needs to follow. But let me turn to another question, Beth Novak. You've worked with thousands of social innovators over the years. And of course, I think in our audience, they would very much like to know within their respective societies what makes some people more effective at social change than others.
1: So I think the important thing to dispel is, again, that this notion that innovators and changemakers are born instead of bred. I think that, you know, we tend to look around and we celebrate these social innovators, social change makers, or leaders, impressive as they are, and sort of think, maybe that's not me. I'm not a leader. I'm not a changemaker. I can't do that. And I think that we're being very unfair to ourselves when we recognize the fact that the skills that it takes to be what I would call a public entrepreneur, just as much as an entrepreneur, is a set of skills you can actually learn. And that these kinds of things, when you think about them as skills, when you think about them as a discipline that you can develop, and especially where you can now get so much of this content online, and I've created a free online program exactly to impart these skills, is that anybody can really become a successful social innovator. So it really starts with the will to do so and the desire to do what we might call mission driven work or to make change happen in your own community, number one. Number two, it demands the discipline that it takes to actually upskill your in the skills that you need to become a change agent. And that first and foremost starts with the willingness to be able to define the problem that you're trying to solve. That is much harder than it sounds. Most of us, frankly, if we're honest, we want to jump to the solution, like here's the cool app or the cool method or the cool thing that I heard of. But we really have to start with identifying what's the problem that we're trying to solve and what's the root causes of that problem. And then after we figure out what those root causes are, we have to decide which is the right root cause for me to tackle. So quick example, Here in every jurisdiction, we're seeing the challenge with people wearing masks or not wearing masks. There's a lot of root causes to that problem, right? It might be that there are issues with people's ability to afford a mask, or in some cases, it's a political issue. People are getting misinformation and political disinformation about wearing masks, depending on your root cause you're going to have very, very different solutions to that problem. So for all of us, it's about a reflective process of understanding what's the problem I want to solve and what aspect of that problem am I in the best position to work on given where I sit, the networks I'm in the middle of, and my own talents and passions, and then just to do it. Frankly, that's all that it takes.
0: Beth, earlier you mentioned that you had a free online program. I was wondering if you could share the link with us, perhaps some of our audience may want to take your program. Absolutely,
1: Yes, it's aimed at a global audience. It's at solvingpublicproblems.org. Again, solvingpublicproblems.org. It's a free online course. And we're going to be putting up some challenges soon for global innovators where we're really looking for public problem solvers through our new Center for Social Change. We're eager to incubate and to help people from around the world who want to make a difference, who want to make change happen and are facing impediments in doing so. Whether it's the skill of problem definition, or using data, or knowing how to use technology, or knowing how to engage with citizens, we are here to help to provide free assistance to people who want to make a difference in their own communities and to create fellowship and community among people who want to be change makers.
0: The book is "Solving Public Problems: A Practical Guide to Fix Our Government and Change Our World." The author, Beth Simone Novak. Once again, Beth, thank you your time and keen insights we greatly appreciate it
1: thank you for having me
0: press conference usa on the voice of america was produced in washington with technical assistance from rick pantaleo i'm carol castiel join me again next week for another press conference usa on the voice of america